our fundraising strategy was one where we went after a bunch of small and medium checks and that was intentional strategy. And that may not have worked as well pre-COVID because if I had to go meet with everyone, as opposed to just jumping on a 30-minute Zoom call with them, I think it would have been very different. So fundraising moving online, I think it's been a huge win for entrepreneurs and, you know, also the team aspect too. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey, leaders. Welcome back. This is Ledge. So today I'm talking to Richard White, and I have to throw myself under the fanboy bus because I love Richard's new company and it's Fathom, and he's going to tell you about it a little bit. We're going to talk about the story, but... Full disclosure, I love this product. I use this product. I tell everybody about this product. So I might be playing the fanboy card on on this episode, and I'm going to ask for everybody's grace. But Richard, welcome. Please introduce yourself much better than that. (laughs) Thanks for having me. And that's an amazing opening and super humbled that one of the nice things about this product is we get a lot of folks are super happy about it. And honestly, that gets me out of bed in the morning more than any revenue number ever would. So yeah, so Fathom, about two years ago, we're a free app for anyone on Zoom who hates trying to take notes and talk to people at the same time, which from my research seems to be about everyone. And so we're a desktop app, Zoom app. We join your calls along with you. We record them, transcribe them. Also give you ways to like highlight parts of the call while it's happening. So the whole point is you don't have to take a bunch of notes and you can get back to just having conversations with other humans. And you can kind of name the little chunks of notes the way that you want and they have colors and flags and you can watch the video back and i like i said i'm a fan this thing helps me out a lot love to talk about the journey and what i think i can gather from your resume is that you have been the guy who had problems and built stuff to solve them and turn them into businesses And I'm hoping there's a little bit more logic behind that. And I suspect that there is, because I do find that people often do that and build the thing. And turns out that their target addressable market is them. And (laughs) there's probably a little bit more in it between the idea, the execution and all that. But yeah, man, I'd love to just talk about it. Yeah, I do think that's probably been the biggest change in my, the evolution of myself as an entrepreneur, right? I think of all the things I've started and built And I consider myself, I'm originally a programmer turned designer. I love pushing pixels. I love getting into those details. But yeah, I think everything I've worked on has been a problem I've had myself. And I think what I've gotten better at over time is making sure before I dive into building a solution for this problem I have is making sure there's, you know, at least a few other people in the world that have that same problem. And I feel like each iteration get a little better at figuring that out. So you're a guy who has worked in and around customer feedback. And and I think there's a lot uh, to be said for customer feedback-based product and development and driving our company strategy by that. And I think I can also point to, and maybe you can, instances where customers in mass just go, oh, we want a thing, but it's actually not the right 
thing to build. And so there's the discernment that comes from blind customer feedback building and Franken building that results from that or Franken products. And then how do I guardrail that as a founder? This is one of the, I think the biggest education challenges we had at user voice, right? Because when you set up a user voice portal, you, what you get generally is a lot of solutions. Hey, you should build this. Hey, you should do that. And you know, what you really should do is if there's a thousand people that say, Hey, you should build this integration or do this thing. It doesn't mean you should do that, but it means you should dig into why people want you to do that. And so I think because users tend to speak in a language of solutions, or that's like the more engaging prompt, right? Asking people, hey, what your problems are not very interesting. Everyone wants to be part of the solution. And so I've always taken the lens of like, great, I don't, whatever you say is somewhat interesting, but I generally just use it as a jumping off point to figure out like, okay, what's the underlying problem you're trying to solve? And I love it when users suggest solutions because that's engaging for them and they're excited. I'm like, that's great. Like you should give me all your solutions. It's my job as a product person to like peel back that onion and figure out what is this underlying problem and how would I actually solve this from the lens of our technical constraints and our product constraints and our product vision. And so you're a, you call yourself a product driven CEO then? And yeah, maybe a pixel driven product driven <laughs> CEO. Pixel driven CEO. I don't know. That's, that's yeah. probably a new one. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Just made Claim that on SEO right now. <laughs> so, there you go. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely. I'm decent with customers, but I'm. I love being behind the curtain, just working with the team, iterating the product, and and honestly, building a lot of systems to get a lot of product feedback back to the team. That's. I think building pipelines for good product feedback is actually really hard because it comes through so many different channels. It comes through your support channel. It comes through user interviews. It comes through sales calls. It comes through so many different places. And so it's actually, and you've got big rocks and you've got little usability things. And so figuring out how to aggregate all the little things and keep your eye and unpeel the big ones. It's actually a big part of the product role is figuring out how to not go crazy, how to build a build an input that is high volume, but also doesn't drive you bananas. <laughs> and so that makes me think, because we have, folks that approach and become founder or CEO from all different seats, right? Like engineer, product, sales, marketing. It's just like different places that you might have reached that hub. And any one of those contains its own behaviors and biases that mean you need to surround yourself with some other types of people. And at least your first, second go around, you don't even realize that there are other kinds of people and that what you might be missing is called a certain thing. That's how I learned that marketing was real. And I just wonder what that's been like and how you've evolved in that area. Yeah, I feel like that's one of the biggest superpowers you acquire over time. Like at User Voice, I ran the marketing team for a bit. I ran the sales team for a bit. I had execs and leaders in those places I could learn from. And so now I feel look, I'm a C minus marketer and a C minus salesperson, but I know enough to be dangerous. But I actually think if I could go back and tell myself one thing, and I run this a lot, sometimes run into people that are come from a marketing background that are now trying to do product. I actually think usually the failure mode is not you do product wrong, but you're like afraid to do product. And actually, if you just kind of go with your gut on a lot of these things, you actually get a decent outcome. And I think a lot of the people that I saw were most successful had kind of confidence in doing roles that they actually didn't have a ton of experience in. And because I think it's far more dangerous to overthink it and be like, I can't possibly, I don't know anything about marketing, so I can't do marketing. And so I have to hire someone to do it. I'm not even going to try. And in a lot of these disciplines, especially things like sales and marketing, they're evolving so fast that honestly, if you just learn from first principles today, 
however it works for you. And don't try to do it all and don't try to go become someone else's marketer. You'll do a decent job enough and tell you for the zero to one phase to get you to the point where you can go raise the money, build the team and hire someone that's better. I always say I've got to do a thing before I can figure out how to hire for it anyways. Like I need to go. I think that the trap is saying I need to find a white knight that will go do this thing for me because I don't know how to do it. I'm afraid of it. The real thing is like force yourself to go do it. Go learn how to do it. You'll do a crappy job, but you won't do as bad of a job as you actually think you will. And then you'll have a good appreciation for what it takes to do it better. And when you try to interview someone to do it, you'll be able to stand, you'll be able to test them better than you would have otherwise. So when I think of the different roles that you need to execute, you know, as as that sort of chief janitor, right? <laughs> At the beginning, you do need to learn all the things. And I guess my approach has always been like, this can't be so complicated that I can't at least understand the vocabulary of this thing. I know I can't execute all the stuff, but I'm like reasonably conversant in business. And my, my tenure goes back to where you didn't have a blog for everything. And there was not enough internet to go and be like, what the hell is that even called? So now I think that there's a benefit of at least having the Googles and being able to say that, oh, that's called demand marketing. All right. Now, what are the component pieces of that? And at least you can be like a basic taxonomy builder yeah. on the way there. Because yeah, I think the challenge is it feels like a lot of the things feel like open-ended questions when they're actually multiple choice questions, right? Marketing is an open-ended question. It's a multiple choice question, right? Here's, here's eight different types of versions of marketing you'd be doing. And the, the other trap is you look at, you worked at a larger company or you look at larger companies and you see what they do for marketing. They do all the things, but you at, at the beginning don't need to do all the things. In fact, that's a anti-pattern, right? You need to do one or two things, right? And so, for example, when we were starting Fathom, I knew enough to be like, okay, I know there's eight different marketing things we can do. We're not doing demand gen to start. We're not doing any content to start. We're just going to basically do, we think this is going to be a viral product. So we're going to focus on customer advocacy and marketplaces. And that's it. Partnerships, marketplaces, and that we're going to skip everything else. We're not going to worry about. It. And that, I think, once you realize there's an a la carte menu and you got to choose from it, you only need to be good at one or two to start, not all 10. And half of them may not even be a good fit for your business. It makes it a lot easier. It is true. The way I found out about it was somebody posted in one of my slacks and, hey, I'm using this thing. I really like it. Here's my invite link. And I signed up and there was coins flying out of the right hand side and making noises. And I was like, oh, this is cool. I want to know what this is. Did you home grow this or is this a thing? And I love the tool. And then I told my friends and sort of here we are. So I think you can, uh, of course, there's the idea of you need to execute that well, but you chose a channel, you stuck to a channel. And it reminds me, I don't know if you're a Gabriel Weinberg attraction kind of guy for marketing. Like I, I learned that there, that book taught me, you know, there's different channels, focus on them one at a time, saturate them, move on. And that was super helpful. I always point to that as, oh, that's how I understood the marketing word of what a channel is and how do you address it? Yeah. And I think like earlier in my career, I tried to, I didn't have the confidence to do marketing or I'd hire someone to do marketing. They try to do all the things like at a C minus level. And I was like, ah, oh, that, that doesn't work. Yeah. What, when you look at the team building aspects, do you draw a lot from previous adventures? I find uh, serial founders to be, if any, not anything, or if anything, they're people collectors and they bring along their key players to the next crazy adventure. And eventually, if you do that long enough, the key players don't even say, what are we doing next? Just be like, just trust me, we're going to do this thing. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, I feel like that was another kind of, I draw a lot of comparisons between like Fathom and user voice, right? First time playing a video game and like your second time playing that same video game. It's like the first time you play Minecraft, you don't know what you're doing. Second time you play Minecraft, you know what to do and you know you want to do it with and you bring your friends sort of thing. And yeah, I was very fortunate that when we started Fathom, I got to start it with some of my top engineers from user voice and my top salespeople from user voice and people that are basically from the previous 10 years of work experience could go, Hey, we're doing a new thing when you and, uh, Man, that is such a force multiplier to just have great people you trust, right? Because in the early days, I feel like your hit rate is 50% if you're lucky, right? In terms of getting even folks that are good fit and work and probably even lower if you want the best people you've ever had in that slot, right? So to start with like my best engineering folks and my best like CS folks is huge. Did you, I guess, so let's see. September 2020 is the kickoff for Fathom, at least on on your resume there. So did you benefit from having had this thought prior to COVID and everybody hates Zoom and wants to make it better now? Or was that like a happy coincidence? Or Yeah, I don't know. Because I think for the audience we were originally thinking about, we did most of this research before the pandemic and was already like, for most of our audience, they were already on Zoom, right? The founders, the salespeople, the success people, they're already on Zoom or moving to Zoom. So in some ways, the pandemic maybe is helpful, but in some ways maybe it just created more noise. So there's like more people entering the space and more people have seen this problem. So I don't know. I could argue both sides of the pandemic was helpful versus the pandemic was not. For me personally, like I, I like started nomading during the pandemic and it really forced us to make this a remote first culture, which was always probably going to be. But yeah, it made that, you don't have to even make that decision. You don't have to, we didn't have to convince anyone if we're going to make this remote first because that's the only option we have right now. So that was probably the, the biggest silver lining, if you will, to kind of that weirdness. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that would take a huge distraction point out because there, there easily could be investors or other stakeholders. Or, we got to get everybody together in a class A office space with a snappy logo on the wall. And this is just not how professionals do it. So uh, being able to sidestep that was, yeah, probably a meaningful move forward. Yeah. I think our, our fundraising strategy was one where we went after a bunch of small to medium checks. And that was intentional strategy. And that may not have worked as well pre-COVID because if I had to go meet with everyone, as opposed to just jumping on a 30-minute Zoom call with them, I think it would have been very different. So fundraising moving online, I think it's been a huge win for entrepreneurs and also the team aspect too. But yeah, especially that. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to me about funding. I'm watching this video. You've got the beauty of San Francisco behind you and you've been through YC two, three times. So like you're deeply situated in that place where that's just what you do and for this kind of company. And I don't wonder, did you ever have the bootstrap itch or ever think about that? Or are you just isolated from it? I earlier venture that I did between the working in the first YC company and user voice actually did like a bootstrap venture. And it was actually like, it was actually extremely bootstrap. It was like, it was an experiment of if I have to do everything, how big can I make a thing? Because I was a bit of a control freak at the time. And I was like, what if I could just do it all myself? And it was a great learning experience. And one of the big learnings is I can't do much by myself. I can't get very far, but definitely bootstrap that, that company. But no, I'm, I have a lot of respect for people that bootstrap companies. And I think for a lot of businesses, that's the right thing to do. I tend to look at like for a lot of the opportunities I'm looking at when I look at like the market size, market opportunity, I tend to think like speed of execution really matters in a lot of the 
generally I'm solving a problem that I have and I think a lot of other people have. If you have a more niche problem, you have the opportunity to potentially go low and slow. And that might be the optimal strategy, right? For a lot of these things. Airbnb is a good example. There weren't a bunch of people clamoring to do Airbnb, right? It was like this, uh, Paul Graham calls them like unfairly unpopular ideas. And so you don't need to raise a bunch of money because you're not in this like knife fight with 20 other people. I tend to work on things where I feel like I'm always in a knife fight with 20 other people. And I tend to approach it from a, can I go faster with X million dollars under my belt? And my answer is almost always yes. And so I try to optimize for that. If it's the certain type of problem you're trying to address, you couldn't move fast enough to take on whatever in your space. There's all types of players that are approaching this challenge interestingly and, and differently from the sales yeah. call. When we show people like Fathom and say like, hey, you shouldn't be taking notes when you're on a Zoom call. No one's like that. No, I disagree with you. Everyone agree. Everyone's like, this is a, yeah, we, we absolutely should. Everyone should have one of these, right? And when I hear that, it's, oh, okay, we need to move fast. And also this Fathom is, a, there's a lot of technical complexity to Fathom, right? It took us an entire, it took us five engineers an entire year to make V1. That's a lot more than your typical SaaS, B2B SaaS product, I feel like it takes to make V1. And so very intentional. It's like, we need to raise a lot of money. We're going to have to have a big team early because we need to get this thing to market before anyone else, because there is a first mover advantage. I think most people are, we're switching them off of pen and paper or Google Docs, right? And so if we if it takes us three years to get there, someone else is going to get there first. And so very, again, you got to match the tools to the problem. Yeah, it's true. When I saw it, I was like, this is exactly what I want. I want to annotate and tag video. And be able to go back and be able to turn it into something useful. And I'm still begging your team to allow me to upload my own recorded MP4s, by the way. But we'll just let that sit out there. Definitely on the roadmap. So it's a, technically <laughs> a harder lift because of some of the things we do. we optimize to make it really good for Zoom calls. But we hear that a lot and it's still important. <laughs> I've been the vocal, I've been the vocal minority or maybe majority. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, I appreciate that. So it would be super helpful for, of course, it runs in the face of you should just have everybody on your team plan and make sure they use it. I can appreciate that too, being the sales guy. We've so. <laughs> got a solution for that too, actually. Yeah. So we're trying to solve That's a good example where like everyone asks us, can we upload videos? There's a problem there. And I, we dug in and said, okay, what's, what are, let's unpack this. And sometimes we hear like, oh, I have videos that I you have before Fathom, great, we can solve that problem. But we have a lot of people that's like, oh, I want my entire team to make sure all their calls are getting recorded on Fathom. Great, let's actually come up with a better solution for that part of the problem. And so we've actually focused on that part first. Yeah, yeah. which is frankly a better monetization strategy because all of us are alert. like, you had the great product problem of all of us being like, damn it, we love this thing. Eventually they're gonna charge us money for it. <laughs> Sorry. I, that's fantastic. It really checks the boxes. I mean, the nice thing about this business too is that it breaks very cleanly in that we're the only ones that are like, if you want to use this as an individual completely free and we're planning to keep it that way and we see that as a differentiator between us and the market because people don't feel like want another tool. They don't want to take the risk of paying money for it. It's only once you've got some traction in your team and we go to the manager, the founder or whatnot and say, hey, you're, some people on your team are loving this. We should get this your entire team on it. You've got a budget for tools. Let's get you to pay for the premium team edition sort of thing. And so it's nice to keep that church and state separation because, again, it really helps the virality that like the product is completely free for individuals to use. And so, yeah, so I think it's that was another thing we figured out. I think two things I started to learn to figure out earlier in, in the startup journey is one, figure out like the go to market and the market size. And second one is figure out 
what, how are we going to monetize? Because with user voice, we start building it. And at some point we got in there and felt like, oh crap, how would we monetize? And we had to make it up there. We knew from day one that this is how we were going to do it from Fathom. And I and did some things to test that hypothesis well before we even ever turned on the monetization angle. And you can see the maturity of go-to-market strategy in general there. Because it used to be just turn on a free amazing thing throw $100 million at it, get a lot of users and figure it out later. I don't think that serves anyone well because you end up in a completely messy sort of profitless disaster that eventually somebody's going to care. And then that day of reckoning very well, if you look at the market now, very well may have come. And that's just no longer tenable. That's more like hope is not a strategy. Right. Yeah. there are a handful of businesses where that strategy works really well, right? Like they're generally all consumer businesses with huge network effects where you're actually monetizing your users, right? Facebook, LinkedIn, you name it. You're right. For B2B, you can go, like I think in both User Voice and Fathom, we went the whole first year with never trying to monetize. And then after, because my whole thought is like, why bother monetizing if I can't prove I can get growth? Because if I can't get growth, then I'm not going to have this big business anyway. So let's go prove we can get growth first. And then I feel like if we can get growth in usage, you can usually find some way to like bridge from that to revenue. But if I go for monetization first, it one generally impedes my ability to focus on growth. It's hard to do two things at once. And then I might end up with this like mediocre business sort of thing. that's not high growth and blah, blah. So I like doing things in serial, which I think is a little atypical. And yet you did say that we, we intentionally set out to grow first, but we had the thought of the, if growth is successful, this is going to happen. Yeah. And here's where we will monetize and we'll reach a tipping point that is discernible and makes sense based on the channels that we chose. And I think that's just, you talked about experience. Like that's everything about experience. I've seen this before. I have enough pattern recognition ability that I can now go, here's what's going to happen. And I'm going to look smart, but really I'm just going to look like that I did it a bunch of times before. (laughs) Wisdom masquerading through the lens of just having tried things. And I don't know if you can fabricate that. And it's interesting looking at the, I have years ago, my own experiences in the accelerator space and incubator, all the different models of let's try to do and teach this faster. And I don't think that anybody's captured exactly that you just simply have had to have done this thing and gotten a little older in the process. It'd be cool if we could, but I don't know if you, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's true. It does have a trade-off though, which is that as you get more experience, you get blinded to like new opportunities. The part of the reason I went back, we went through Y Combinator with Fathom is like a lot of my peers now are running larger companies or VCs or whatnot. And I thought it was going to be super valuable to get back in the arena with other people in the arena to learn how they're doing it. Because the tactics change very quickly, right? Like by the time you hear about some sort of tactic, whether it's a product tactic, an engineering tactic, a marketing tactic, by the time there's like books being written about it, there's already someone that's on the bleeding edge doing something different. And so I think you learn a lot from being close to people that are figuring out from first principles for the first time, right? Because they're looking at it with beginner mind that I don't have. And so I, I think... I'm glad I have some experience. I think it's makes me it makes things a lot easier. As long as I don't fool myself in realizing like I don't have beginner mind anymore. So I need to surround myself with people that do so that I'm not blind to, you know, I mentioned my 
my girlfriend doing B2B marketing with TikTok. Like I, that is not a thing I would have thought to do. And so like learning from her and being surrounded by other people that have this beginner mind, I think is also important as you get more experienced. Yeah, that's a really great point. I love that. I think the experience is where you can learn to categorize tactics into patterns that there's very few new fundamentals, if any. Fundamentals just don't change. And it's that MBA playbook of, I got to learn the functions of a business and they probably need to be roughly organized this way. And we move the cars around and we might call it a chief revenue officer or a VP of sales or a chief commercial officer. And do we combine marketing sales? Do we not? But ultimately, experience only gets you so far as to understand how to label the buckets not what you're putting in there. And there are new tactics and channels and experiences and all kinds of stuff that just simply wasn't possible two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah. When I was getting started, I think I often got fooled by other people's experience. I meet people and because they had experience, I was like, this person is really smart about this. Oh no, they just have a bunch of experience. I'm actually probably like smarter. And if I like just, if I gave myself a little more credit and bandwidth one more time, I probably could be on a bigger trajectory. But so I think that's the opposite side of that is like, trust yourself a little bit, trust your own intelligence to figure out some of these things. Lean on people's experience, learn from them, but don't become reliant on them. Don't assume they know everything. And so that's, I think, one of the big takeaways I've had too. Yeah. My own experience in Accelerator World, it was, so we called it, and I still think this is accurate, mentor whiplash is a real thing. It's like everybody has an opinion. And then in the same way that you've sort of force multiplied that into like customer opinions are there's just more of them and they come from different places and mentor opinions are the ones where you make critical order of magnitude mistakes because you don't know how to process all that stuff and people send you in strategic pillar directions that are just straight up wrong and i think that's the biggest change for me as my career has evolved too it's like i used to be like oh i'm going to some mentor told me to do something i'm gonna do 100% what they said and now I do 15% of what they said because I pick it apart and be like, I don't think that's right for us. I don't think that's right for us. That right there, cool, that's the nugget. And I think there used to be this joke back in Y Combinator of a part of the trick to Y Combinator was like figuring out what 10% of what Paul Graham said or one of the group partners said is what you should actually be doing and what is the 90% you should ignore because it's not right for you thing. And it's tough. It's a real tough thing to, tough to calculus to figure out when you're... It's absolutely right. And at some point you may a choice and you are 90% likely to be wrong, <laughs> which I think is, that's the magic or maybe the drug of why we all do this over and over again. It's a very fun, open-ended video game, the best I can tell. And that's why I think we all do it. <laughs> as long as you can keep paying the bills, feeding everybody who matters and understanding that there's a career trajectory to being an entrepreneur and it takes commitment and there's going to be some times that are not as fun, <laughs> but you hope that you get up every day and like the thing that you built enough to show up and go to work, even if that's now with your pajama shorts on and from a campground. What's what's it look like on the not roadmap from a product standpoint, but you as a founder growing a team and like the what's next and what's on the radar industry-wise and you know you got a lot of things to process now yeah obviously we have to get uploading videos working that's clearly going to be on the roadmap but yeah, 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 yeah i appreciate it. Oh. that's why i offer these spots <laughs> so you can get your product feedback in yeah no i think we're in we've been in what i think is probably my favorite phase of the company right that we're 12 people right now we've been in that phase for a while and god it's i'm just 
I, I know what kind of comes next, which is raising more money, doing the next level step function of growth. We get a few more lieutenants in here. We add a few more functions. Like literally our team is all basically engineering or customer success at this point. And we don't have any marketing folks. We don't have any. We have to grow the team. And that's going to be fun. But I'm right now really trying to just revel in the fact of, gosh, this zero to one phase where you get less than 10 people around 10 people is just such so much fun, right? It's like everyone, you don't have all the communication challenges you have later. And I've just been really trying to soak it up because for 10 years, I had gotten away from it with my last company. And so now I'm just like really appreciative right. of how much fun this phase. Made. They used to call it the two pizza, yeah. two pizza size team. But yeah, I, or I think we're getting close to taking that step, that next step. We've got a lot of the metrics that, that say it's time to do that. And looking forward to, you know, with every one of these set functions comes a whole new set of challenges. And it's like, a, again, I overuse the startups as a video game analogy, but it's kind of like we're leaving the tutorial zone or leaving the first land. And now we're going to the next zone in World of Warcraft or Zelda or whatnot. And so it'll be a whole new set of monsters for us to slay. <laughs> and you get to go boss mode. Now, that that's awesome. And it's it reminds me of the metaphor, I guess, when people actually had in the same space and the two pizza team rule. And, and once you pass that, it just is different. And you go, there are people that work for my thing that I've never talked to. And that's just weird. But it's also, I still have my core 12 or whatever it is. And now I need to teach and learn, get them to be able to manage their 12. And it goes up and up. Yeah. Most of my closest friends run companies that are usually like 500 to 5,000 employees. And they never talk about the pixels or the technical problems. They Everything they talk about are people problems, right? Culture problems, HR problems, like everything, communications problems. That's everything they think about. And so it's interesting that you get this kind of sliding scale of what types of problems you're going to be dealing with in the chief janitor role as it gets bigger. And these are my, I, currently in this phase, we're solving the problems I enjoy the most. So, <laughs> Yeah, awesome. So from a B2B standpoint, I always ask all my guests at the end, what macro or trends or what should be on the radar for a leader of B2B company, any sort? What's going to matter for the next couple of years? With user voice 10 years ago, I, there started to be this revolution, I think in 2010, around providing like fantastic like customer care, customer support. Like Zappos carried that banner for a bit. And and I, I really thought everyone's figured it out. This stuff is really high ROI. And then it petered out. And I feel like most products I use today have like garbage customer support. It's the chat bot that says, oh, we'll be back in 12 hours. It's the contact form that forces me to fill out 10 fields. It's the, the company that hides behind their knowledge base and whatnot. And I think what happened is all these bigger companies went to community support forums and knowledge bases and whatnot because at their scale, they felt like they had to get the unit economics. And then all these startups started adopting these things. I'm like, what are you doing? And I, so I think one of the things we, you know, our headcount from day one has almost been equally split between engineering and like customer success support. And I think we're four or five on one side and six on the other roughly right now. And if you go look at our GT reviews and a lot of things we do, like we provide phenomenal support. Like we've invested a lot of time and energy into it because we think it's super important. I think it's as important as getting the product things right is getting not only having a team that is incentivized to give great customer care, but also building the on-ramps of customer care. So it's like we try to, we have a goal of, we will email you about a bug that we see that you ran into before you email us. We will make sure that if you give us any product feedback, we know exactly where it goes. We can do almost, we can trace it. We can follow up with it. We like, and I, and I think most companies, just, most startups, like forget most companies, most startups do a garbage job of this. And I don't understand why, because it's not as expensive as having good engineering. 
and it provides about the same utility. So I think that's my soapbox. I feel like we're pretty unique in how much we put into customer care, and I don't think we should be at all. I feel like every like what we should be doing should be considered table stakes because it's just so high ROI, especially in a world where word of mouth matters again. And word of mouth didn't matter for 10 to 15 years because you could just spend money on ads and do all these like high yield marketing things. Newsflash, all that stuff is drying up, right? There is no Northwest Passage to just getting 100,000 users. You got to go back to doing it the old fashioned way, which is make a great product, make a product people want to recommend and love, not just, and part of that is they love the fact that the humans behind it really care about your experience. And so that's my rant about go invest in your customer care, get your knowledge base out of the way, stop putting all these tools in between you and your customers and just open the floodgate. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And the conventional knowledge for a while was you spend an equal amount on marketing and you an equal amount on engineering and things will just happen. And you never heard a word about any of this stuff. And I think that's that's right. And I know from even from a and I, I guess I would encourage people because even from a sales standpoint, we have this mantra of the look, not every lead should be sold to some of them suck. A lot of them suck. But everybody should be treated like they deserved to be sold to. Engage, offer value, make sure that experience just feels good because they're going to grow up or they're going to tell their friend or something is going to happen there where it's just, yeah, they were cool to me. (laughs) And I think that just matters and it annoys me when we screw one up. (laughs) Yeah, it's weird. There's this era where we were happy. We spent all this effort spamming people that didn't want to talk to us. And then on the other side, weeds that we didn't care about, we just dropped on the floor and they just never wouldn't hear from us. And it's terrible. We should at least always follow up and be like, hey, we don't think you're going to be a good fit for these reasons. But if you still want to talk to us, we're happy to talk to you. I don't know. We're getting back to a more humanist, I feel, interactions with customers, or at least I think the good companies are. And I'm kind of happy to see that. Richard, I appreciate your time. I love the insights. This has been a lot of fun. Love the product. Everybody should check out fathom.video. I'm not being paid to say this. I'm just a fanboy. Richard, anybody resonates, obviously they can reach out to Fathom if they want to check out the tool, but for your own personal channels, what's the best way to do that? Yep. I'm not, as we talked about pre-call, not much of a social media guy, but I am on LinkedIn. So if you have any feedback on the product, ping me on LinkedIn, or just you want to chat about any of these topics. I, I feel like one of the best things about startup culture is how much everyone is very open with their time and with their learnings. And so I've learned so much from this community. I'd be happy to share what I know and try to give back in some small way. So yeah, Richard White on LinkedIn. You'll see this little like pixel art looking avatar for me. It's blue. It's not an it NFT. Does look, everyone asks it does look NFT, like it. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's pretty accurate. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's yeah. going to age super it's well is what I like about it. But thank you so much for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Love the insights, man. Thanks for coming out. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.